Okay, hi everyone. Thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, this is our first shot at doing a podcast, if you will, and welcome to When Movies Were Good. Uh, my name's Rachel and I've got a co-host here, one of my great friends in life, uh, Matt. Uh, we're both from Melbourne, Australia, and we met through a local theatre company, which we still volunteer at, especially Matt does. He's very involved there. And uh, we just got together and talking about our love for old films and just thought, you know, with what's going on in the world, why not get together and do a podcast when we talk about films and when they were good? Because we definitely love a revolved films. I'm not too keen on what a lot of what comes out of Hollywood at the moment. I'm not too sure how Matt feels about that, but um, that's something perhaps we can discuss down the line. So the format of our discussions or podcast, if you like, uh, really will be themed around two films that we pick, the era of films that we want to discuss uh, from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and perhaps early 60s, but we'll see how we go. And the theme will normally be around a director, a period of time, um, perhaps a cinematographer, actor in a film, um, a genre, film noir or any other sort of comedic genres or anything, but all kind of relating to films of that era. So I just wanted to thank Matt for being with me today. And uh, Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, thanks very much, Rachel. Well, uh, like you said, we um, both met at a um, theatre company. Uh, my background is actually in uh, so art and archaeology, so I'm, I'm, I'm actually a curator by trade. So um, I suppose I always uh, have had a strong influence in the uh, visual. It's probably more in the uh, last 10 years or so that I've gotten really interested in the, uh, the moving visuals. So this will be a good angle to push from. That's fantastic. So, um, and actually you're, you know, you have a great interest in theatre as well, which kind of is a, a, an as do I, which is a great segue into our first um, uh, podcast today where we will be discussing two films from the great Orson Welles. Um, Orson Welles is quite a, quite a very interesting figure in, in both not only theatre, but film as well. I mean, what do you think about his career, Matt? Well, Orson Welles is such an all-encompassing figure. He really um, reached world notoriety in uh, radio about um, uh, three years before he entered the film world, um, particularly because of his broadcast of War of the Worlds. Now, uh, we know it's pro these days it's probably generally, generally regarded that the world actually did not believe that aliens were invading. But uh, however the um, actual result was at the time, it was a magnificent publicity vehicle for Orson. And uh, that really put his talents, uh, talents on, stage, on stage for the world to see. And so it's uh, quite an all-encompassing uh, variety of uh, mediums he worked in. He worked in film, radio. Uh, I don't know if he got as much into television as Hitchcock did. Um, I know he had a few um, made-to-TV serials. His trouble was that unlike Hitchcock, he wasn't that very good at a businessman. He didn't get on well with the men in suits. Uh, That's, uh, so. Yeah, I had read that, yes. And also he, um, he actually, his love for the theatre, I mean, he went off and started his own repertory theatre company, the Mercury Theatre Company, is that correct? Yes, and um, the... 
his um sort of radio production company um had a similar thing and um in citizen kane his first film that was also uh, uh sort of part of the mercury family yeah. yeah i noticed that a lot of the actors that he just from researching the film they were all from his pretty much all very untested cinema actors who were all from his theater company in new york is that right or well, he had a very um, unprecedentedly um, powerful contract um, with Citizen Kane. He um, uh, that didn't necessarily mean he was uh, financially compensated in any big way, but perhaps the um, in terms of his power, in terms of um, directing, editing, final cut, it was quite unprecedented. Uh, he was this uh, rising. Um, he was this rising power force in the late 30s, and apparently the studios were willing to take a, a risk with him. It's quite unusual. Um, it was Charlie Chaplin in his time uh, did have a similar all-encompassing authority in all aspects of production, but that was in the silent era when productions were a lot smaller. The studios hadn't taken quite as much of a hold when you needed such a large sets and um technology um to be monitored over like it like an army basically so uh, it was quite unprecedented how much um authority Orson Welles could have given that first film and Citizen Kane and he never quite had that same authority again he yeah I was uh, to, to put it I, I think Roger Ebert said um uh Orson Welles uh, can do better than any other director with one hand tied behind his back. The trouble is, is that he always has both hands tied behind his back by one executive or another. <laughs> That's right, because he was uh, his his way of making films was quite um, well. I guess he'd come from the stage, and his perception of making films was quite a bit different from a lot of the established film actors that were working in the industry at the time. So let's start with the first film that we're going to discuss today, which is by a lot of commentators considered the greatest, if not one of the greatest films ever made. And perhaps it was just the era that it was made. It was the avant-garde sort of techniques that he used in this film. Uh, Citizen Kane was made in 1941. And Orson Welles was its producer, co-writer, director and star. And this was his first feature film. And it was nominated for Academy Awards in nine categories. Um, so a lot of critics, as we just said, filmmakers believe that this film is one of the greatest ever made. And it's a sort of quasi-biographical film. There was a few major sort of media players that um, sort of took umbrage to uh, this film, it's like um, uh, William Randolph Hearst, was it, and, and Joseph Pulitzer, who were two big newspaper magnets because the film is an investigation of the the main character, Charles Foster Kane, who's played by Orson Welles. Um, uh, his dying words reveal conflicting stories from his scandalous life. And it's um, sort of um, a film that jumps back and forth um, in this character's life, but we do see him on his deathbed at the start. So, Matt, what, what's your take on the story in Citizen Kane? Well... It's interesting looking at um, that film because I actually only saw it for the second time in my, in my life quite recently. The first time I saw it was when I was a teenager. At that time, I hadn't even um, sort of known its reputation as supposedly the greatest film in the world. I liked black and white films, and I think that was how I 
I think my mum uh, saw a copy in the discount bin or something and gave it to me one time yeah. when she was, because she knew I liked black and white films. <laughs> and so um, I saw it and I didn't have that um, preconceived notion if you were going to film school that you might otherwise have. And so I did find the story to be very powerful. Now, I didn't know anything about the technological innovations at the time and really um, uh, any sort of visual or technological innovations should play a play supportive role to the storyline generally. And yes. I believe, and I found the story of this great figure who, uh, who had sort of been, had uh, that fundamental aspect of his family home taken away from him at a young age. And he had to, sort of deal with this unprecedented wealth and sort of finding a meaning for himself. Uh, I found the story quite powerful. And like when you're 16 and the like, stories like that sort of resonate with how you want to sort of approach the world. I, um, what it didn't occur to me at the time was that this was actually, it, even though it has that sort of all-encompassing, wisely old age vibe to it, this was made by Orson Welles when he was only 27 or something like that, I think. It was a very, or 25 actually, sorry. It was a, a young film. It was a young uh, director, full of energy. He was not um, trying to capstone his life to have a magnum opus. Nobody in general, I think that most who do try to create a, a great all-encompassing magnum opus tend to be the ones that create the flops. He yes. created a, uh, uh, a storyline, and in his case, it was his background in theater which helped probably some of the, some of the innovations he made. Uh, sometimes it doesn't work. In his case, it did, because one of the major innovations was that they used a deep focus. So that means that the, for the most of the film, the majority of the picture was completely, that you see on the screen, is completely in focus. That meant he could do all sorts of play with in-depth uh, layering of, of the picture. So going through great corridors, or there's that famous scene where the childhood um, citizen Kane, it, childhood Kane is playing in the snow outside while his parents are talking with a lawyer in their house. And they have both, both um, sections of the picture uh, playing out against each other. Uh, which uh, would have been hard if you were only fo focusing on one element. And in a nutshell, it's, a, it's actually quite fascinating when you go into the technical terms, but essentially you needed a huge amount of light to be able to uh, create that full depth of field, because to create a depth of field, you need to have effectively the iris of the camera closed a lot tighter. And so it means distributing the light evenly uh, throughout the space is can be quite difficult. This is quite often why uh, a lot of filmmakers cheat. They mainly have a very narrow focus uh, near to where the camera is, move it for another spot, cross-editing through. Orson Welles loved his long takes, especially yes. later when he uh, had a lot of interference from studios who wanted to edit um, his films. Afterwards, he would learn to use the, that method a lot more because it meant that if you have a long take, it's harder for them to get away with cutting up the story without it no longer making sense. 
Yes, that's true. But the thing yes. with Citizen Kane is that it is not purely um, Orson Welles' own uh, innovation. He had um, a great deal of help from a cine- cinematographer at the time, Greg Toland. Now, Orson Welles was interviewed about Citizen Kane over and over for decades. It's a real tragedy that I think not even... um. I think uh, Greg Tolan, the cinematographer, had already died within five years of that film, so it's a great uh, tragedy that we sort of don't get to hear both their stories with it. But um, Olsen, he had the the vision, sort of the theatrical vision, the lighting vision, and what he didn't realise for the first few uh, weeks of production was it actually behind the scenes when they were uh, setting up the lighting and he was describing his vision not necessarily knowing how that translates to the camera a lot of the time. Greg Tolan was actually in the background, basically secretly telling everybody how to actually achieve what he was wanting. Yes. And um, when it was revealed a few weeks later, uh, he sort of took Orson aside for a weekend and taught him most of the uh, technical aspects you need to know about a camera. So Greg Tolan was obviously one of these craftsmen who was willing to share the uh, a creative vision to engage in a creative dialogue. He wasn't hoarding the technical secrets, uh, claiming it would take years to, to learn. He freely admitted that most of the uh, operations of a camera you could learn in a weekend. Uh, and yes. he was willing to, to help uh, Orson achieve his uh, vision. Well, I think with most films, I mean, the director can often take a lion's share of the credit, but it's often all the other little things that everyone does on the film that it's a it's definitely a team effort. I don't think there's any film out there unless the person's doing every single thing on their own, a successful film that was just down to one person. It's often just a lot of the right people there at the right time. I mean, I actually didn't realise, but Bernard Herrmann, this was his first music score for a film that he did. Uh, At least my research said that. And obviously we know him for all of the great scores that he did for Alfred Hitchcock, including Mm. one of the most famous, uh, Psycho in 1960, but also North by Northwest. I mean, just the list goes on and on. And I didn't actually realise this was his his first film scoring. So, So basically... You know, Citizen Kane is this sort of sweeping film about this man who, you know, builds himself up and becomes a, a mag, a, you know, a media magnate. But it finishes, you know, with him on his what well, starts and sort of finishes in the same spot. What do you think about the symbolism in this film? There is, um, if we allude to that um, symbolism of Rosebud, um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, uh, of course. So now, uh, one tongue-in-cheek thing I have heard it's obviously a bit hard to confirm but one of the claims is that it was actually a reference to a pet name uh, for the newspaper magnet that uh, Charles Foster Kane was allegedly based on the nickname he had for his um, uh, his uh, partner's tender region (laughs) I did not know that (laughs) So this well, was his tongue-in-cheek one... way of getting it into the film, wasn't it? Well, it's one claim, and uh, certainly I'd be certainly I'd be ticked off, and probably what's that's one of the reasons he uh, tried more than anything to um, uh, suppress the release of the film. Um, yes. Uh, but um, I think uh, 
a big part of it is um, the symbolism is, of course, a reference to childhood home. And uh, it's perhaps a concept which is um, a little more foreign to maybe a lot of uh, younger generations, particularly raised in um, suburbs uh, that are um, uh, sort of... Sort of um, uh, reproducible they all look alike um i remember when uh, i was studying german and we had to constantly study this concept called high marks which was rather difficult to translate into english and maybe generations back then understood it a bit more but also was sort of searching for this maternal uh love the family home that he lost what i thought was rather unusual about the film is that we see um sorry spoilers but we see um Olsen's mother, uh, she um, gave him up to the uh, lawyers um, to, uh, and the banker, believing he'd have a better life. We know that uh, she was probably trying to help him escape a violent father uh, yes. who um, uh, was more ticked off about losing um, his share of a, a fortune because of a legal technicality. And but then the only other reference we have um, to her part playing in the narrative is when he's in middle age and she's and she's died and her possessions are in a warehouse somewhere. And so I think that's quite um, unusual in that we don't really know um, what part, if any, she played in uh, Orson's life until then. Like, uh, did he only uh, find out she died through... Uh, a letter from a lawyer. Did he make any contact with her afterwards? Uh, were, was there concern on either side about how each other played in their upbringing? Um, so it's a uh, it, it's a it's a lot of questions, and you can understand how how um, Charles Foster Kane would be uh, searching for that um, that attention, and like he's always searching for attention. I mean. He's this flamboyant character. It's um, uh, it, it's sort of a um, like in the in the time it was a very different world when I first saw that film when I was sixteen. But since then we have all these um, very flamboyant people like the Kardashians and stuff that live their life on yeah. um, an open stage, even though they probably have um, had a uh, well, at least they've had their parents around for most of their life. They didn't. They weren't uh, torn at childhood, but certainly this um, cross between uh, some. Well, personally, I don't see the Kardashians talking for the work for the working person so much. So much, but then uh, Charles Foster Kane. It's um, very much a yes. I'll support everyone, but they've got to love me in return. It's a very. Um, uh, it's a very self-centered uh, way of approaching the world. Yeah, um, I think I suppose what I got out of it, I'm I'm more of a fan of a film that just starts somewhere and finishes somewhere. So his narrative structure in the film perhaps is not my cup of tea. While I am appreciative of it, I just prefer a film that kind of starts somewhere and finishes somewhere. I'm really highly engaged by films that sort of jump around and have different people coming in and out. Not that there's no value in films like that, but for me it's just not naturally what I enjoy without having to think too much about it but I guess for me so you I think suppose it, so you think sorry so you think it didn't um uh, finish um uh, somewhere like you'd like it to uh no it sort of started and finished somewhere that aspect it was the way it got there in between I think <laughs> you know yeah. I guess for, for me I just prefer a character start somewhere 
and they finish somewhere. But that's just a personal thing to me. That doesn't mean any film that uses a different narrative structure or anything is wrong or anything like that. It's just in terms of me sitting down and watching a film, I just like to go on that journey with the character. If I find if there's too many flashbacks or other things happening for me, not not in all cases, I guess it depends on the film. But I suppose I, I do like the symbolism in this film. Um, um, I am always drawn back to a, one of the great miniseries that I watched during the 1980s. I'm a bit older than Matt, so I remember the 1980s quite well. And um, it was about a character who was very similar to Charles Foster Kane and he was at the end of his life and all these tragedies had befallen him and he had these massive amounts of money and no family and he looked at the one person he still had in his life and he said, you might as well take the whole house, take everything. And she goes, I don't need anything from this house. And he said, why not? And she said, this house has taught me everything I could learn. And he said, what's that? It was actually Hugo Weaving who was playing this character. And yeah. uh, she said that possessions are meaningless. And I've never forgotten that to that day because you can have all the possessions, all the wealth, everything in the world. And I think this film, there is a little bit, I mean, Rosebud was the sleigh that he was playing on as a child. And I guess that's taken him back to a simpler time when he was sort of genuinely happy in his life, I suppose. So perhaps that's kind of an easy way of maybe putting some kind of moral thing onto this film is that, you know, possessions and having wealth and status, you know, can't trade for the happy, the genuinely happy times that you have in your life as simple as something as playing on a sleigh when you were a child, I suppose. So. Yeah, well, I suppose to me um, the a philosophy is that um productiveness sort of meaningful productiveness um is happiness in a big way and yes i uh, am a fan of uh, mark manson's the secret art of not giving a beep uh, i think yeah. that's a good <laughs> but it's um it's interesting the way that um wells um uh, his actual life how that would sort of um correlate in an opposition way to some of the successes and failures of charles foster kane because Kane has all this wealth, but sort of no goal to go around. Whereas Orson Welles was a um, prolific independent creative. He just struggled financially to um, uh, to keep up with his uh, projects. And um, there is one interview where allegedly he claimed that um, uh, he wanted to um, buy the rights of RKO from RKO at the time to have the uh, control of Citizen Kane, he'd be able to sort of release it himself and be independently wealthy. And like, w would that have solved all his problems in that he would have just had the means to fund his projects? I, d I don't know. Um, maybe, uh, maybe he would have um, been able to uh, help finish those projects. Although I think he also struggled with them um, mentally. Uh, some of the, some of the later projects, especially for example, um, the one that he never um, finished, uh, uh, the um, that Netflix has just um, done an interpretation of. Uh, oh, What's God, the name of that? Name. It was. Um, That's okay. We'll have to look it up. I, so I, I, Netflix I, I, is doing it. It's the age of internet. You don't need to know names. <laughs> a film that Orson Welles didn't finish, and you don't know what it's been talked about. Um, That's okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, okay, uh, well, so, so this film was shot over 10 weeks. It was shot at Paramount Studios in um, in the Hollywood. And some other people who we would know in this film, um, Joseph Cotton, who was quite well known to 
moviegoers of the time. He especially did um, some really good Alfred Hitchcock films. Agnes Moorhead, I I remember her from Bewitched. Is that is that right? Is that the same Agnes Moorhead? <laughs> yes, that's exactly the same. Um, it's a, a kind of um, a difficult to imagine going from sort of the the uh, how shall I put it? Uh, when many people are used to seeing her as the first colourful cougar, and instead seeing her as this very <laughs> austere Colorado housewife um, uh, person with the with the dark hair. Mind you, um, she was apparently quite a keen um, uh, biblical um, uh, student um, throughout her life, so probably that would have been an identity that would have suited her. Sort of that um, austere, um, austere um, uh, Midwest um, uh, uh, lady uh, focused on the important things of life. And yeah, it was just yeah, it was interesting that she was in this film. And um, but before we move on to the other Orson Welles film, there was um, somebody else had co-written this film or had given a lot of notes for this film. And I'm going to probably say his name wrong. It was Herman Mankiewicz. But um, uh, Orson Welles went through and and changed the script quite a lot. So he primarily got the credit. And they've done studies about it, I think, and it was primarily Orson Welles's work. So um, I guess it was his it was his baby. It was the one he wanted to make. And I mean, for a first film, I mean, wow. So I did like the film. Um, it's probably not the most natural watch for me. What about you? What's your final thoughts on it? Okay, I, as far as the uh, writing of the storyline itself, I know very uh, little myself, but as far as um, I can certainly imagine Wells would have taken a dominant uh, uh, hand in the storyline, but more importantly is the, the, visual, the, the visual power that he introduced. So he'd uh, proved himself in radio, and he introduced a lot of the uh, sound innovations to um, Citizen Kane as well, the way you have... Um, sort of naturally competing voices. It's not always, uh, it's not like, um, for example, a Shakespeare play uh, where you have one clear line going from the other. There's like overlapping fighting of speech and uh, a voice uh, comes out. Um, it's uh, quite theatrical in that sense. He'd already mastered a lot of the sort of early film noir uh, lighting in the stage. He, um, uh, he did manage to achieve a lot through um, projects that were partially funded through the New Deal, so he had a lot yes. of opportunities. He, um, he really came at the at the best time. Um, uh, uh, a talented uh, theatre who um, and his country basically said, "We need to employ people, uh, come up with projects to, to do so," and he did. Um, but I think it's uh, it, it's 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 too hard a uh, it's too hard a claim to make for any film painting or piece of music that is the greatest ever made. Um, if you approach it as a story, it's uh, I think it's something that can really resonate at any time. It's uh, like Elgar's cello concerto. It's was for years associated with um, this older man at the end of life mourning over World War One, creating this melancholy piece. But then Jacqueline Dupre the very young, uh, blonde English cellist played such a uh, heartfelt um, rendition of it. It's uh, so it was something that could really resonate across all generations, and I, it's it feels so fresh today, even. Yeah, 
It does. So we're going to briefly go over and have a look at another film that he made from this period of time, although he had a break from what I was reading. Orson Welles went over and he went back to the theatre and back to radio. Uh, so he made The Stranger, uh, 1945, I think it was shot, released in 46. So The Stranger is a, a film noir drama about a war crimes investigator who tracks a high-ranking Nazi fugitive to an idyllic New England town. And this really is film noir, <laughs> just from the get-go it is. So it has Edward G. Robinson in it, Loretta Young, and Orson Welles is the third lead, uh, playing the fugitive Franz Kindler, a.k.a. Professor Charles Rankin. So um, this film was shot at Universal Studios. Uh, Orson Welles was married to Rita Hayworth at the time. Unlike Citizen Kane, this film was a box office success straight away and it often gets compared to the great Alfred Hitchcock film Shadow of a Doubt, which starred Joseph Cotton, who worked with um, Wells in Citizen Kane. So what, what, what's your thoughts on this film, Matt? What, what do you like about the story and uh, what do you think about the actors in the film? Well, I think the comparison with Hitchcock, Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt is absolutely spot on because... The, the huge nucleus like Shadow of a Doubt is that you have this idyllic, uh, quiet, supposedly perfect American town. Um, I mean, we've known all the social um, analysis since then in the 60s and so forth, but we won't go into that for now. But you both in both films, you have this idyllic town and you suddenly have this dark force come in. This one individual that's sort of corrupts but shows its um shows its weaknesses and is um doing his best to hide in plain view um in the case of um uh, this one it's a it is a nazi um hiding out uh, amongst the uh the birthplace of america's future sons or um whatever the uh, the term it was um back back then um yeah, it was and, a very idyllic place and, yeah, very high-respected uh, yeah, people I think, lived in those areas. I, I think that's how um, New Haven still views itself now. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, in the case of um, Hitchcock's uh, Shadow of a Doubt, um, that's a much more abstract uh, one where you have another, another uh, West Coast town, Santa Barbara, Santa Barbara, I think it is, and uh, you have this supposedly perfect... Um, uh, uh, American um, new city, uh, all the good um, American values, and suddenly there's some um, dark force brought in by a steam in the form of Joseph Cotton, brought in by a steam train with belching black smoke, and he gradually uh, uh, shows his uh, corrupt side. Um, he's a, uh, we know that he's a killer. We know that he. Um, uh, despises um wealthy widows who have apparently made their husbands work to death so they can reap their um her inheritance um <laughs> but i think that i suppose um that's well that's a very rich film on its own and that certainly would be worth another podcast in itself yeah definitely so this was his third feature film orson wells 
Um, there is symbolism in this film as well um, with the hobby clock that um, he has and also the clock in the town. Um, what's your opinion on um, how he shot this film? Do you think it was as um, stylistic as uh, his first go out with Citizen Kane? A lot of people thought it was a bit more sort of formulaic, but I guess a lot more films in the noir genre were being made at that time anyway, so... Well, as I recall, um, Wells did make it in a rather uh, hurried um, fashion, and it is quite tightly edited. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's uh, it's quite clean, and he's already beginning some of the uh, long exposure um, exposure um, sorry long takes um, which he'd become known for, especially um, in the Touch of Evil. I love the part where he's killed. Well, even before that, where um, another former Nazi who's escaped, um, or he's been allowed to escape, so they can lead, he can lead the authorities to to Wells in the small town, and he Wells lures him into a wood, strangles him, and then hides the body all, all the time, anticipating uh, some schoolboys to come chasing up that he knows are going to be arriving later, and that beautiful long take where he's hiding. The, the body and the camera swerves over it. It's a very um, visually powerful motive. It really draws you in. Uh, as far as um, sim symbols, definitely it's not as... Um, it, it's far more narrative-driven than Citizen Kane, though. It's it's much more like the sort of the pulp fiction of um, the Maltese Falcon and yes. the like. Yes, I, I do agree with that. I'm I'm still kind of getting into that particular genre of film, so I'm not um, too familiar with some of the other ones. But when I was looking through the catalogue of film noir, I mean, I'm very familiar with all of the the um, the names that were coming up. So I'm I'm looking to definitely explore that a lot more. This film for me was probably a better watch. I, I did enjoy certain sequences, the sequence you referenced when Orson Welles' character killed off the person who could blow his cover um, and some of the high-tension sequences with uh, Loretta Young. I thought she was very good and I really liked Edward G. Robinson in this film. I don't think... Um, from what I was reading, he wanted a woman to actually play the role that Edward G. Robinson was playing. I don't know if it was Agnes Moorhead, but it was somebody along that line, but the studio said no. And you're right, he was under a lot of pressure to bring this film in under budget uh, and in a timely manner, and he did do that, and it was a box office success. So I probably, for me, I enjoyed The Stranger a bit more than Citizen Kane. It just had a bit more of the elements in it that I'm a bit more of the thriller style elements in it that I'm sort of interested in. What was your sort of lasting impression of it? Well, I think I saw um, The Stranger about three times in very rapid succession. So I loved it very much. The um, It has so much, there's so much visual, uh, visual excellence that you just can't stop looking at it. The, uh, when the scenes in the clock tower and like I, I do love my old um, grandfather clocks uh, uh, yes. and you, all the uh, gear movements, the dark shadows, the um, uh, even the, the, some of the sky views, it's um, uh, very, um, very entrenching. Um, Would and, you pick one over the other or it doesn't, not necessarily? like to watch if you had to sort of sit down and choose one to watch would you or or both are equally good 
I think both are equally uh, good. It's um, I think uh, the uh, look. I'll be controversial. I'll say I think the Stranger has as much visual merit as Citizen Kane, uh, but the uh, the storyline of the Stranger is uh, much more um, suspense driven. Yes, uh, I agree. And but it's also aged uh, superbly. Now I don't know if it's um, simply because. Because in 1946, of course, chasing down Nazis was a uh, a, ve- a very new thing, and like you can tell, even when they're discussing um, some of the crimes he was supposed to have done, that they didn't even have a quite a clear idea of everything that went on in in the death camps. Some, um, uh, yes. like there's a uh, like a discussion about how the showers were used and and everything. So obviously, they were still investigating um all the methods that were used but um it's a storyline that's continued well in that we know how people will try and hide out in plain view um well that still happens today so yeah i i'm i'm these these days though probably most nazi fugitives probably aren't as a (laughs) chase though they probably just need to to let the air out of their oxygen cylinder (laughs) Yes, like there's not too many of them around now, thank God for that. But um, uh, well, look, that was um, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Matt. That was a, a great. So we did, you know, these films are definitely worth a watch. Um, all classic films are. All of them have merit in some way, shape, or form. Whether it's an actor that you like, a director, the story, the way the film was shot. Um, I suppose that's why I asked Matt to do this uh, podcast slash discussion with me. Um, on a regular basis because I really just got sick of what I was seeing contemporary Hollywood bring out. I can barely get through a modern film from Hollywood. So I still like Australian films. I still like a lot of English films. There's some foreign language films that I've seen recently that are that are that were good, but the stuff coming out of Hollywood is just nothing like anything that they used to produce, where um, where all the films were pretty good. And is there anything you'd like to say before we sign off, Matt? Or Oh, um, I, I suppose it's just a. Uh, I think we could almost have eventually a second stream of podcasts where it's kind of like the the second classic period, sort of from nineteen sixty to nineteen ninety. Uh, but I true. think, um, uh, yes, uh, Hollywood is uh, very different, and like you can tell, um, often when looking at even modern films set in a uh, in a previous age, that it tells much more about the era of the people that are making the film than when it's set it's um i, I think um the modern era we have too much um uh, we give ourselves sometimes more credit than we deserve think, uh, thinking that um everything is right now and not back then it's a much more ambiguous um uh, journey to look through so I think we'll have a lot of um, food for thought um, in coming episodes. And even if we um, are primarily focused up to, like you said, to about 1960, I think we'll um, see a whole, a whole extra way of thinking. Uh, hopefully um, uh, listeners will um, be inspired to explore this rich uh, period. And um, I look forward to having the excuse to watching all the movies.
Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Matt. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to many more collaborations. And thanks to everyone who gave us a chance and listened to our probably slightly rough first go at doing this, but it's all good because we're, we're learning as we go along. And uh, we really thank you for listening. And uh, we, we hope you'll check back in with us again on the next episode. So thank you from Rachel and... Matthew, thanks for having us. Thank you. Take care. Bye.